Today's episode is brought to you by Marlene Van Niekerk's Agat, a novel Toni Morrison called As Brilliant as It is Haunting, a deeply layered saga of resilience, loyalty, and betrayal. Agat explores the decades-long relationship between a wealthy white woman and her black maidservant beginning in 1940s apartheid South Africa. In complex and devastating ways, the power shifts between the two women over the years, mirroring the historic upheavals happening around them and revealing a shared lifetime of hopes, sacrifices, and control. Books like Agat, said the New York Times Book Review, are the reason people read novels and the reason authors write them. A special 10th anniversary edition of Agat, which includes an introduction from Mary Gateskill and an interview with Toni Morrison, is out now from Tin House. Today's episode of Tin House Live, Publishing, Power Structures, and Creative Practice, is the last episode of 2020 and the perfect way to end the year on a high note. Recorded at this summer's Tin House Writers Workshop, we're about to hear a conversation between writers Lainey Zumas and Janice Lee. Lainey and Janice are colleagues at Portland State University, both professors in the MFA program in creative writing there, and you can tell they've had many conversations together before this conversation about questions of publishing, writing, teaching writing, and all the complicated questions that arise from the ways the making of art and the selling of it clash, and how the commodification of art intersects with broader societal issues around gender and race. Lainey Zumas is the author of Farewell Navigator, The Listeners, and most recently, the Oregon Book Award-winning Red Clocks, which Vulture called one of the 100 most important books of the 21st century. Lainey has been on Between the Covers twice before, most recently four Red Clocks, but given today's conversation, which talks about writing hybrid and cross-genre works, among many other things, Lainey's first appearance on the show many years ago might be a particularly interesting one to seek out after this conversation, as it is the first time I interview someone about hybrid, cross-genre, or indeterminate writing. And it is also the first and only conversation with a collaborative pair with Lainey Zumas and the artist Luca Di Piero, where the discussion of collaboration and authorship is part of the conversation between the three of us. That episode is about their collaboration, A Wooden Leg, a novel in 64 cards. This is Janice Lee's first appearance on Between the Covers. She is the founder and executive editor of Entropy. She's contributing editor at Fanzine, She's co-publisher of the press Civil Coping Mechanisms and co-founder of The Accomplices. Janice Lee is the author of seven books in all three genres, fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry, including Reconsolidation, The Sky Isn't Blue, and Damnation, a book-length meditation on the films of Hungarian director Bella Tarr. Lainey and Janice also discuss the publication journey of Janice's upcoming book, Imagine a Death, coming out next year. Two things to mention before I hand it over to Lainey and Janice. 
At the beginning, you'll hear Laney reference Lance. That's Lance Cleland, the director of the writers' workshops and the craft intensives at Tin House. And he was giving announcements just prior to this audio. So that is what and who they are referring to at the beginning of the episode. And secondly, Janice reads from a recent essay near the beginning of the episode. And I wanted you to have the name of it, an essay published at Volume 1 Brooklyn called Books Are Not Products, They Are Bridges, Challenging Linear Ideas of Success in Literary Publishing. I'll put a link to it and to the two Laney Zumas interviews and also to the Fred Moten conversation they reference in the listener supporter email that accompanies today's episode. That is one of the many potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show, a resource-rich email with each episode. If you want to learn about all the other content, gifts, and rewards that are potentially available as a supporter of Between the Covers, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now I'll hand it over to Lainey Zumas and Janice Lee. Thank you, Lance. And um, thank you, Janice. And thanks to um, my students in the Tin House workshop and, and you know everyone involved in the workshop. Um, I'm really excited to be uh, participating in this kind of ex more experimental adventurous version of Tin House um, online and seeing all the, the ways that, um, speaking of accessible, uh, that working online can open up opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't um, be able to go to a writing conference. Um, so uh, Lance mentioned um, an essay that, that Janice published in December of 2019, and it's a really important piece that I too have been thinking a lot about ever since I read it. And um, I thought we could begin today by actually having Janice read uh, the opening paragraphs of, of that essay that can launch us into a discussion uh, about a lot, of, a lot of the things that she'll touch on in the essay. Yeah, yeah, thanks Lainey. Um, so I'll just read the first few paragraphs of this. I want to talk about the struggle of returning home. That is, I want to talk about the challenges I faced in looking for a publisher for my new novel, Imagine a Death, and how this process forced me to examine my own beliefs and wounds around linear ideas of success and to begin to work towards healing and freedom from a limited imagination. As a female writer of color working in hybrid forms and across genres, I have always had an intimate relationship with small press publishing. As an editor and small press publisher myself, I have always recognized the importance of community organizing and radical alternatives to the conglomerate, mach blah, to the conglomerate machine of mainstream publishing. But also, as the daughter of Korean immigrants, I have had ingrained in me a particular work ethic that is intertwined with both an inherent sense of self-worth and survival. As a mid-career author in my 30s and the author of five books, many of my writer friends with the best of intentions encouraged me to submit Imagine a Desk to their agents, editors at big publishing houses, and much admired independent presses. What I heard from these friends was, this next book is going to be your breakout. This one's the big one. It's definitely time to move up and go with someone bigger. You earned it, you deserve it, it's time. 
This novel wasn't like anything I had written before, a depiction of the cycles of abuse and trauma in a prolonged end time. The novel examines the ways in which our pasts envelop us, the ways in which we justify horrible things in the name of survival, all of the horrible and beautiful things we are capable of when we are hurt and broken. Much of my own personal trauma was wrapped up in this book. In fact, it had felt like it had taken the entirety of my body, my heart, and my life experience to write. Because of how much the book meant to me, I wanted to believe that what my friends were telling me was true. I did deserve it. It was time. So I submitted to numerous agents and publishers, both big houses and large indies that claimed they were interested in innovative or experimental work. Many indicated that they were especially interested in work by women writers of color. I received many form rejections. Many did not respond at all, even after I followed up. Many of the more substantial responses included versions of the following language. I love the premise of this novel, but found it to be too philosophical and lyrical. I'm afraid the writing is a bit too esoteric for my taste. This is a stunning work, and this is not a judgment on your talent or the merit of the work, but we wouldn't know how to market something like this. We admire the work you do in the literary community, but regret that this is not the book for us. My immediate reactions after receiving these notes, because I am human and capable of being wounded, included cowards. You don't know how to market something like this. Isn't that your job? Fuck you. What good is being a literary citizen if no one will publish my book? No one had feedback about the shape of the manuscript, that is, no one indicated that it needed work or revision. In fact, many of the responses were complimentary and commented on how tight and polished the writing was. They simply didn't think it was the type of book that they could sell and that it wasn't the right aesthetic for them or that it wasn't what they were looking for at this time. I wasn't surprised by the rejections, but I was still disappointed and hurt. As much as I believe that I didn't need to be validated by external forces to know that my writing was good or important or to secure the commendations of the industry in order to feel like a legitimate writer, it felt impossible to completely shed these ideas. Of course, I wanted to be recognized and validated. Of course, I silently compared myself to other writers who were getting big book deals, making TV appearances, and had thousands of followers on Twitter. Of course, I wanted that too. I deserved that too. This is what I believed and kept hidden from myself. But my current healing practice asks me to look for those holes I am trying to fill inside of myself. And so I knew that the fulfillment of any of these desires would never fill the hole I sought to close up because the hole itself was an illusion. It could never be filled. I had to accept that I was already whole about any of those things and not because of those things. I had to find a belonging in myself that no one else could give me. This is the process of healing from trauma. The trauma of a life of constantly not being good enough, of being Asian American, of being forced into the identity of overachiever just to be seen and accepted, of relying so much on external validation. As a member of what is deemed the model minority, it seemed unimaginable to shed the things that had made it possible for me to even get where I was now. The success I had encountered so far in my literary career had been possible because, like a good girl, I had followed the rules. Thank you, Janice. Um, and the, the rest of this brilliant essay is available um, through the link that, uh, that Lance put in the chat. So I invite everyone, um, probably many, some of you have read it already, but um, if you haven't, to, to read the rest. And um, even in the portion that you just read, Janice, there's so much to talk about. Um, and I'm really struck by this idea of uh, 
that that you kind of explore throughout of not resolving and not coming to some neat and tidy like decision about how you feel about everything and um, and the ways in which a lot of these questions remain open. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that groundlessness or that uh, sort of lack of resolution um, in terms of like some of the responses, because you've got a lot of responses to this essay. Um, and I'm curious to hear um, what, what sort of questions people were asking you or like how, how people have been responding to the essay. Yeah, I mean, um, it's been interesting. Like I've been, I've been really reluctant to answer these questions. One, because I don't know how, but also I think that groundlessness, groundlessness that you're talking about is actually part of the investigation. I mean, I think a lot about um, the stinker I admire a lot by Akamalefe, and he talks about how you know the way that we 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 respond to the crisis becomes part of the crisis, and so I become really aware of like just saying that I'm not going to do A, B, and C doesn't actually make make it better, right? And so these are like questions that I'm still exploring now. Um, in terms of like you know responses, it was really interesting because um, I did get a lot of responses, um, lots of responses. Uh, from some people who were feeling kind of similarly and um, hadn't known how to voice it. And so there was a lot of gratitude. Um, there were also lots of um, people who I think, I don't know, read this and interpreted it very differently, but like suddenly had very practical questions like, oh, so like, how would you, you know, recommend that I find a small press publisher? And like, what are, you know, it's like very like practical publishing questions. Um, and then very weirdly, a lot of people who had previously ignored me in my work before, um, having seen the essay, now offering to um, get on their podcasts or offer reviews and things for when the book came out um, because of this essay. Um, so it's, I think it's been really interesting um, to try and figure out how to navigate that. And so I feel like every time there's a new response to this essay or something happens, it's asking me to actually continue to re-interrogate these questions that I was initially asking, um, which is really useful for me. I think it's, as writers, like, it's very, I mean, we, we love validation. Um, and so it's really easy if someone's like, you know, complimenting you and, and offering you things, like you wanna say like, oh, why yes, um, like, thank you. But um, I think it is like important, especially now, like during this time is a really good opportunity to, interrogate a lot of the ways in which we've lived our lives and just because it's worked up to this point doesn't mean it's what is sustainable for the future um but it's really hard yeah right um yeah i feel i feel like uncertainty is actually the the main thing to kind of come out of all of this is is how to be okay with uncertainty and to not rely on having to map out what is what is a trajectory what is a trajectory going to look like right like what are the steps that i had to take in order to be successful um because now i mean especially now but also before all of those things might not even exist like a year or two years from now yeah and that and 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 also the the idea of being kind of open and truthful at least with our ourselves um about the uncertainty and about the fact that more than one thing can be true at once like it can be true as you're exploring in the essay that you know, you have given so much of your body and mind and self and life experience to this project and you do want it to have readers. And, um, 
and yet you also do not want to um, respond to people saying like, what if you made it less lyrical and less philosophical and like had more action in it? And then it wouldn't be the book anymore, right? And yet, like, I think the, the strain of, of feeling as like I've felt at different times in my writing life, like I have to just do one or the other. I have to just say like, fuck it. Like I just, I want like, to find readers or I want to be paid or I want, you know, I want, I want, I want. And, but then also realizing like, it might be virtually impossible to write work that I believe in. Um, if, if, if my primary kind of awareness is like how it's going to be read in the marketplace, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think like, I mean, in some way, I mean, I think a lot of us are like responding to different things in our writing. Like we're exploring, uh, narrative structure, we're exploring character, we might be exploring, um, you know, things that are more content kind of things. Um, and for me, I think the main place where I do that investigating is in the language is actually in the structure of the sentence, which is what I think causes a lot of obstacles for people because I'm interrogating the structure of a sentence so much. I didn't realize this was actually going to be such a like challenge for people, right? But because especially in this book, the sentences are really long, they're really dense, um, which is really important to me in terms of speaking about excess and the kinds of narratives that can fit into sentence structures and, and what kind of can't. And so there's a lot of what would be considered extra. Um, but that to me is really important. Like that's actually the story. It's, it's all of the stuff that would normally get cut off, right? Like the fat that you would cut off of a steak, like that to me is actually the story. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I can't imagine actually writing this particular book any other way. Um, otherwise the whole point of the book is actually to like interrogate those structures, um, which means that it needs to be in a different container. Um, and so it's interesting that I get asked like, oh, well, if you could just fit it into a more marketable container, I'm like, well, that's actually the story that I'm trying to tell is the problem with the marketable container itself. <laughs> right. right. And, and I think, um, again, in my experience, and I, I'm curious to hear what your lived experience with this has been, there are actually some sort of categories of writers who seem to have more leeway and marketability when it comes to writing like an a thousand page book about you know someone's thoughts and like that is almost always a white man right yeah. Yeah. and you know those doorstopper books that you know might be beautiful or might not be whatever but like the the, the philosophical lyrical investigation I think that that comes into the marketplace and into I mean, I keep saying the marketplace, but maybe be to emphasize like how much capitalism is and is sort of like interlocking with the in within publishing to like shape how we move in publishing and how we consume books. Um, but like those aren't those kind of gates or doors aren't necessarily being closed in the faces or historically certainly have not been closed in the faces of white male writers. Um, and in your experience, like, how do you see that kind of, um, that aesthetic kind of vexed aesthetic issue that you've encountered with like editors or agents, like, like colliding with race? Yeah, I mean, like since, since like I started writing, right? And it's interesting, like those gates have, um, like, so I've, I've apparently never written anything that has fit comfortably into a category for people. And it's, and it's always been a problem. And so right. when I started out writing, my writing was, 
um, much stranger formally on the page, right? So it looks a lot more experimental on the page and things were kind of everywhere. Um, and I would get requests from a lot of Asian American editors, um, a lot of uh, journals that wanted to focus on writing from, from um, uh, writers of color. And when I would send them what I was working on, which was a lot of stuff about cyborgs and consciousness, um, nobody wanted to publish it, right? They were like, oh, we just actually, you know, like, like in, in, they weren't at being indirect, right? But basically what they were looking for was they were, they were hoping that I was going to be writing about immigrant experience, diasporic experience, right? And the fact that I was writing weird sci-fi was not actually a good fit, but they had come across my name, right? Like it fit the check boxes. Um, but like then in other, you know, in other places, um, I would, you know, not be included for other reasons. So I've always been a writer that hasn't been included because it didn't fit into the categories. Like, you know, people didn't know whether it was fiction or poetry. Um, like, you know, why, like, why are you writing about these things? Um, my third book, Damnation, which is a response to the films um, of this Hungarian director, Balatar, weirdly got a lot of, um, not necessarily criticism, but like, um, judgment from female editors because they felt like the book was too masculine and not dealing with enough feminist issues directly. Um, what was masculine about the book? I don't know because it's about the end of the world and it's about a hung I, I mean I don't know. I don't I don't I don't they didn't like say it explicitly. I mean masculine was a word that was used. Yeah. Yeah. Um but I think there's an expectation from female writers and especially female writers of color that we're going to be writing things that look recognizable as what we're supposed to be writing, right? Like it should be about the body, right? If I'm writing about cyborgs, it needs to be about like immigration or feminism, like overtly. Um, you know, and all of those are like things that I'm exploring, but if it's not like spelled out, there's, there's something that's challenging or unmarketable about it. So that's kind of a challenge that I've always had is that my writing has never fit into the marketable categories. <laughs> um, but I also don't know what, really what to do about that. Well, it's also, I mean, it also strikes me, you know, you and I are colleagues together at Portland State University and um, we teach both undergrad and grad students. And, you know, when you were describing um, writing uh, a book that people don't know whether to call it poetry or fiction or nonfiction, you know, what is it? like? to me that like lights up my brain with excitement. Like, I'm like, oh, cool. Like, yes, like do a project, you know, and, and I've had conversations with students, especially grad students where, you know, someone might bring a project like that in or I'll be like, awesome, like make it even more hybrid or like take out, you know, this kind of conventional thing. And then they're like, oh, but no one's ever going to publish this. Mm -hmm. And that sense of like, again, it, it kind of shoves us I mean, not because of the student, because of just this is how often the discourse goes. It shoves us into this binary, right? It's like you either make art or you make something that you can sell. And obviously, like <laughs> that binary has a lot of porousness. Um, and yet in talking about like as a, I'm curious, since you do a lot of teaching, um, not just at PSU, but in other, um, you know, with other groups of people, like how do you talk to students about that? Yeah. Um, one kind of quote that I go back to a lot, it's off, it's on like most of my syllabi, it's Carol Maso, 
um, and I'm paraphrasing, but she's saying something along the lines of like, you know, if writing is about passion and emotion and it's about all of these crazy things, then why, when we put our stories down, do they all look like the conventional models, right? And I'm paraphrasing, um, but that was like a quote that my, that my uh, undergrad teacher had like on her syllabus for experimental writing and it stuck, has stuck with me like since then. Um, and so like, in, especially in my teaching and, and when I'm approaching my own work too, I think the way that I approach it is rather than starting from the top down, like here are the structures and here are the rules and here's how, like, like we must obey them is actually to take it apart and be like, okay, like what is it that you actually want to say? Like, what is it that you're feeling? How are you relating to the world? And then what are all of the possible tools that are out there to tell that story? Um, and of course there requires an understanding like of these models. Um, but rather than, you know, like I feel like especially with like undergrad students, they come in and there's all of these rules that they've learned in their English classes. Like my teacher told me that you're not allowed to like do blink and blink or like. Use you know, an adverb. Yeah. 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 Or like you can only have like this many adverbs or like whatever. And, and sometimes they don't even know what an adverb is, but they have these rules. Right. And so I feel like part of my job is to actually like unteach all of the rules that they've learned and for them to just actually decide like, okay, well, maybe there is a time where you want to have 20 adverbs, but then maybe there's also a time you don't want any adverbs. And like, what, what would be the reason why you would want adverbs or not? Like, what would be the reason, like, what's the effect of all of these things, like in its context? Um, you know, why does it matter if you have a bunch of short sentences together as a, you know, like a one long sentence? And I think sometimes approaching it that way, a lot of uh, students are like, oh, like, I didn't even realize we were allowed to do that, right? Because they're only thinking about how to follow the rules rather than thinking about like, what were the mindsets of these people who had created these rules in their own context, right? Because all of these rules came out of somewhere and they're not wrong all of the time, but they're also not like things that we should follow universally. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that um, grammatically and syntactically also, right? Like the fact that a complete sentence in English is supposed to start with a subject and then have a verb predicate, like that's not a universal. Um, it's only in English that we have, I mean, some other languages, but it's a particular construction to our language. Um, and it was created, like it's, it's a colonial construction that we have, that we've just decided that, oh, well, all of our sentences must be grammatically correct and must follow the structure. And um, well, what would it mean if it didn't follow that structure? Or like, what does it mean for people who never learned that structure because they didn't have the same access to education? Or that's not the way that they learn to speak? Like, does that mean that they're not following the rules or they're just not following like other people's rules? Um, yeah. Right. And, and, and again, getting out of that binary of like, you know, how often have we all heard like, well, you have to know the rules before you break them. But what kind of assumptions are embedded in that statement? You know, yeah, there's so much authority, like who's who's authority. And then and it's not like we're actually teaching the history of where that authority comes from. It's like this mysterious, like some writer gods have decided have told you like, oh, well, show don't tell. Um, and I can't think of it, but it's like all of these, like there's like the Ten Commandments kind of like a writing. But we don't have like a history course and like why those rules came about. We just yeah. we just know them. <laughs> There's a, a book coming out soon, I think maybe early next year by Matthew Celestis um, called Craft in the Real World um, that is asking these very questions about like pedagogy and, and sort of how creative writing is taught and like the kind of things that get naturalized as just good writing um, that actually have really particular histories and, and like material and theoretical and um, 
systemic sources. Um, so yeah, I, enc I encourage everyone to be on the lookout for that book because it's, I think these are very important questions for anyone, but also especially like for those of us who teach creative writing. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about that book also. Yeah, yeah. I remember this anecdote. Um, I think it was Kathy Park Hong wrote an essay and it's probably on the internet somewhere, but she talks about like when she was getting her MFA and how she was really struggling to find her voice, right? Yeah. And her poetry professor just kept telling her, oh, well, you'll find your voice one day, right? And it was all of these critiques like of the poems that she was trying to write. Um, and then eventually she was getting such bad feedback that she just started copying like the styles of the poems that they were assigned, like essentially the white men. And that's when her teacher was actually like, ah, you finally found your voice. And I just remember like, you know, that's so terrible, <laughs> but this is, but this is what happens. I think um, is we just teach, I think people just end up teaching what it is that they feel like writing should be. And I, and I see that happening a lot. Um, and I think that's the hardest part about teaching. Like I don't, you know, always love the writing that I'm, you know, being asked to read by my students, right? Um, nor should I, it's not really the point. But I feel like my job is for them to figure out their best, um, their, you know, what, what they need to do in order to meet their own writing and their stories in the best way, which is going to be very different than me, right? So it's more of a facil facilitation of that, rather than, oh, here are the rules of how to write dialogue and that you must follow this. Um, which, you know, seems really radical, I think, sometimes to, to students, like, they just want to be told, like, what's good or bad, or what's right or wrong. And if I don't tell them that, they feel really frustrated. <laughs> uncertainty, more uncertainty. Yeah, but necessary uncertainty. And, and also, you know, this, this idea of a kind of lateral relationship with students and a kind of reciprocal, collaborative um, investigation of these questions, as well as a, a sort of like honoring the inheritance that you have, say, from your undergrad teacher who had the Carol Meso quote up. I mean, when, sometimes when I'm feeling especially despairing about capitalism and publishing and, and the, these sort of like the scarcity thinking that goes into like, oh no, I have to like figure out how to like, you know, shove my way into like Twitter or to the publishing world or all this stuff. Um, one of the things that does help me is like looking at other kind of like lateral, constellatory, um, non-top-down ways of building relationship. And um, I'd like to share uh, just a, a couple of brief quotes from a Fred Moten interview. So the Lit Hub interviewer asks Moten, what is the prime appeal to, for you um, of collaboration and collectivity? And Moten says, I feel like all the work is collaborative work. It's just that it comes out under an individual name. So the other people you're in collaboration with are subordinated in a certain kind of way to one's own name, even though all of those voices are constantly with you and in your head. There's a customarily solitary practice of orchestrating or organizing all those voices in a particular way. But I think now what I'd like to do is just not even be involved in that solitary practice of composing or arranging. I mean, there's always an element, however, illusory of working by yourself, which takes the form of practicing in the sense that you, you know, you know, a piano player would practice alone, but then the actual practice that you're practicing for, so to speak, is in the ensemble, it's in the encounter. And later, um, uh, Moten go, in the interview, Moten goes on to say, so like I'm sitting in my room writing something and I'm in conversation with Dunn and Shakespeare and Baraka and 
mama and my grandfather and, you know, Louis Armstrong and Charlie Patton and all these people, they're in my head and they're in my body, you know, they're sort of animating my flesh, disrupting the body, I guess, I thought was mine. But there's another kind of sociality that's given in the close quarters of the living, I guess you could say, that I would like to try, that I would like to do, to fade into. And it might not even manifest itself ultimately in any kind of published text, maybe a bunch of writing held in practice, a writing that is and that also documents the practice, but that might very well disappear be deleted, where deletion just means a different kind of dispersion or dispersal, just getting in the air in a different kind of way, a memory of talking and studying together that gets told or retold or untold, as the case may be. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot about um, how important individualism is, um, both in literary culture, but in capitalism and in America, very specifically. And you know, we're really proud of individuals, um, individual accomplishments, which is sort of like an accumulation archive of collecting stuff, which is also like a capitalistic gesture. Um, but it like strikes me how close individualism actually gets to dominance, right? Like individualism isn't actually a support network. It's about accumulation of, of uh, accomplishments or wealth per person, which is a type of dominance. Um, and so, you know, I think about how can we have structures of power that don't um, predicate having the power to be over other people? How can we have power with, um, of becoming with others? And, and I don't know if that really exists yet um, on any large scales, but, you know, I think inevitably, inevitably people get pitted against each other, even if it's not intentional. Um, like I think about like, like being an Asian American writer, um, you know, for a while there were so few of us, any time whether we were in a circle, it, was, it wasn't actually like, oh, like, there's, I'm going to make friends with that person. Unconsciously, it's like, oh, that's my competition, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that, like, you know, people talk about often. Um, there's been a couple Twitter threads about this recently where, you know, like, looking back, like, all of the times in which we thought these people were a competition because that's how the system had trained us, actually was like, oh, no, they're, like, we're all actually doing the same thing, but because of this idea of scarcity, because of the scarcity model, um, we get taught that there's not enough room for us, and so we have to fight harder, um, which is definitely not true. And I think that's sort of the danger in all of the ways in which capitalism have has affected the way that we think, like including the ways in which we think about our identity as tied to being individual, um, which I think is really hard to eradicate um, because it's it's like, you know, our we think our whole identities are based on being an individual. Um, in in the US, but I don't know, I feel like there has to be another, there has to be something outside that. I don't know what it is, but. Well, I mean, one thing that just strikes me is maybe, um, maybe now would actually be a good time to like open it up to the collective of people who are listening and see if there are um, questions um, or comments or, or, you know, to invite other, the rest of you into the conversation. Um, um, so here's a, a question for Janice um, from Julieta. I wasn't familiar with your work, Janice, and after learning about you in this talk, I'm excited to check out your books. I'm interested in knowing more about your work with plant medicine and how that comes up in your writing. What stories or poems of yours should I check out first if I'm interested in that connection with plants and healing? Uh, um, 
there's a bunch of plant essays that are on my website, which I can I can put in the chat. Um, directly, there's not a lot of plant stuff in my books yet. My next novel, Imagine a Desk, will have more of that. Um, but in terms of like how, I mean, I feel like to me, this is a question about like how my healing practice uh, coincides with my writing practice. And for a long time, I would have probably said they didn't because I didn't know how to keep, you know, like we tend to want to keep things in compartments. And I think it's very recently that I see my healing practice, my teaching practice, my writing practice, my editing practice finally actually have started to merge for me. But it's only because I was able to take down some of those barriers, um, kind of some of these struggles that I was I was um, talking about earlier, which has been really difficult because it meant that I had to interrogate a lot of things in certain aspects of my life that I didn't want to, right? So like, oh, I could say that I was, you know, trying to do these really noble things in my writing, but I wasn't necessarily doing them as an editor and, and a publisher because, oh, well, I'm trying to run a business and I'm trying to do these things. So I could easily make these excuses. Um, and so it's required me to have to really interrogate everything I do in every aspect of my life um, to really think, oh, is this, is this actually reflecting how I want to live and like be in the world? Um, which is very difficult, which I'm still doing like, all the time. Um, there's a course that Janice, a seminar Janice teaches sometimes at PSU, um, which sounds very rad. Um, maybe one of these days you're gonna see me like sitting in the corner, like auditing it. Um, but uh, I feel like the last or a, a recent iteration of it was about like um, sort of beyond like personhood, like think looking at texts that um, are thinking about interspecies communication and um, or could you recommend some of the um, other writers texts from that seminar that might be interesting to people? Yeah, um, Amanda Ackerman is a poet um, who does a lot of really interesting work with plants and she's also a homeopath um, and a plant medicine healer. Um, and then this book called Tree Talks by Wendy Burke, um, which might be out of print, but I hope it's coming back in, but it's a series of interviews with trees. Um, she actually interviews trees and then transcribes them and so they're um, really interesting works on the page um and then my mind is going blank um that's that's okay i put you on the spot it's, it's like anytime someone's like what books do you like to read i'm like i'm like nothing i don't know <laughs> look over there like <laughs> i have read a couple books but like what are they yeah mm -hmm. um <laughs> uh so another question from Jeffrey is, how do y'all view self-publishing in relation to these barriers and prejudices in the publishing industry as a whole? Good question. I mean, I just, I feel like generally it's just another route. Like I don't have, um, like I think sometimes people have very strong opinions about, there's a, I think a lot of bias against self-publishing, right? Um, a lot of journals refuse to, review books that have been self-published, right? A lot of bookstores won't take them. Um, and I think there's like a whole narrative around, oh, someone's only self-publishing a book because nobody would take it. And so it must be bad. Um, but like, I think about self-publishing like separate from like the machine of like Amazon's create space where like there probably are a lot of bad books and these are people just have like a lot of time, right? Um, but like, I think about like zines, like I think about like chat books and things that um, people have been making. And so for me, like self-publishing, I think um, is a weird term. Like, like 
self-publishing means like it seems to signify that there's no self like in regular publishing um i don't know it's just like it's a very like weird backwards term but like for me publishing is just making work public right and so that could mean like i'm going to photocopy these zines and hand them out to my friends which i think is like a really intimate and important gesture or i'm going to work intimately with an editor and publisher who's going to help me with that work um and i think that the problem in both models of self-publishing or regular publishing actually is that we've lost the relationships and the intimacy that we see books as products. And so even with a bigger publisher, they're not really collaborating on you as with the book like, as a work of art. It's like, oh, how do we market this? How do we sell this to the most people? I mean, we've seen that with recent books that have come out. Um, lots of narratives that are created in order to sell a product, not a work of art um, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and also to remember that like the idea of self-publishing at different times in history has had a very different kind of freight or cultural kind of, um, you know, cachet. I mean, Virginia Woolf self-published um, all of her books after the first two. You know, she and her husband founded Hogarth Press and they published other writers too, but, you know, that's her books came out on her own press and she wasn't exactly, you know, like shunted off into the margins for that, you know, and, and that was in the first half of the 20th century. It wasn't even that long ago. Um, but again, they're, they're like sometimes like certain ideas like self-publishing or um, small press, you know, they, they, they kind of get calcified into this, into this idea um, or, you know, we have these like value judgments that are, are really hard to pry away from them. Um, Another um, question from Courtney. Hi, Courtney. Um, thank you for both for this amazing conversation. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about defining success for yourselves outside of this capitalist structure and kind of recentering the sense of success within your practices. Great question. That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. It's like something that I'm still working on. Um, but I do know that for me, the answer has to be that success has to um, not have to do with external validation, right? That that can be like a bonus, right? But um, I can't decide that I'm successful because other people have said I am or because I've been published by a certain publisher or because I get a certain review. Because um, all of that is still dependent on external structures. Um, so I do know that the sense of success, I don't even know if success is the right word, like maybe, maybe actually like success is actually, you know, foregoing a relationship with that word in general. Um, it's just like, would I still be doing this work um, if not for these external factors, right? And if I'm only doing it for these external things, then for me, that's a huge like um, red flag of like why I'm doing this, because that's not for me what writing is. It's not actually about, um, serving other people in that in that particular way. Yeah, I, I think um, my short answer also is I don't know. And the slightly longer answer is, I mean, I mean, I share that feeling of like, if I would still be writing these sentences, like in a room by myself and reading them aloud to myself and feeling like I'm glad that I wrote them, then um, that has to be, that has to come before 
the other, you know, elements of like, who will like this? Who will buy this? You know? Um, but I also, I mean, I want to just share briefly this anecdote of like, I, um, last year I was teaching um, an undergrad class and we were talking and in general, in, in my classes, I don't really talk so much about like lit biz or, but sometimes like on the last day, student will talk about like submitting your work. And one, one guy in the class was like, well, Lainey, clearly, you know, you, you wrote red clocks because you saw what like was, you know, trendy and like, you know, the political and kind of cultural world at the time. And you took a trendy topic and you wrote about it so that like the book would, would sell a lot. I was like, Oh really? Like, is that what happened? Like, um, I was like, do you know that when I started that damn book, like it's like 10 years ago. Um, but, but also what, <laughs> what was useful to me in that somewhat annoying interaction was also like, Oh, right. Like we have so little control over how other people are going to receive what we make or interpret our, you know, whether or not it's like the meaning of something or the like, you know, like, I'm just thinking of, you know, for Janice, if, if someone's like, oh, well, like, you know, you write very beautifully, but clearly you're not interested in fill in the blank. And you're like, no, I am very interested in that. But like you, whoever you are, are not able to, you know, connect with that element of my work. Um, so I don't know. It's, I, I think what, another reason I appreciate Courtney's question is that like, we, we all have to do that at some level is like, you know, define things for ourselves because the, the ways in which other people are, are happy to define us often won't feel accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take the next, the next few, Janice? Yeah. Um, let's see. So um, from Tanya. Tanya, how can marginalized writers better distinguish between generative feedback versus their work being shut down or edited to be more mainstream? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't feel like there's an easy answer to that. Because um, I feel like for myself, also, at various points in my life, I didn't necessarily know the difference, right? And sometimes you do need to receive feedback that is difficult to hear um, and is useful. But sometimes, depending on the context, that's not the feedback that's actually that is useful for the work, right? Um, I don't know, I feel like this is a really cheesy way to answer this, but I feel like it's like, like you kind of know in your heart, like what it is that you want to do. And so um, I feel like the kind of feedback that is trying to shut down, I feel like usually the writer can kind of tell that it's coming from a place of like not knowing, right? Um, like when I see this happen in workshop, oftentimes there's a judgment because, um, you know, if, there, if there's a work that's like written by, I don't know, like a Vietnamese American writer, for example, and there are like references to the culture, sometimes like the white students might be like, oh, well, this is not something that's well known. You need to, you know, include all of the facts. Like you need to educate us, right? But like the flip side of that is like, oh, well, like we don't put in extra things to educate about white culture, right? About American culture. So it's only this thing that we've decided to be othered needs to have like this extra support. Um, and I feel like there's no one answer. Like I've worked with students who it is important, like they want their work to be accessible and they actually want to write for a larger audience. And so it is important to have that accessibility and legibility, but also at other points, sometimes that your audience isn't a white audience, it's actually people like you. And so it is really important to just 
keep the things in the original language, right? Like to just keep the Spanish in the Spanish or keep the Vietnamese in the Vietnamese um, and to not have to cater because that's, that's also a different kind of question. And so I feel like it's, it has a lot to do with what are the stakes of the work, um, you know, for, for the writer um, and what that means, right? Like that, I think that kind of can dictate what shape the work needs to take. Mm -hmm. Janice, do you have a particular take on um, uh, if a writer is writing in, in multiple languages, um, say like English and um, French or English and Vietnamese, you know, um, what, a, what about uh, italics for the, the words that are not English? Um, what do you have a take? I mean, I, I personally don't like italicizing things. Um, but I think it depends. So like I have italicized words because it's like a one, like a single word that I'm singling out. Um, and I, for me, I think it has more to do with like what the writer wants to do. I think it's actually more dangerous when people tell when there's the rule of, oh, if it's a foreign language, it has to be italicized. I think that's something that I have more resistance to than like, okay, if I can see reasons why it might be italicized in one work and why in another work it might be really politically important to not italicize and to normalize it. Um, and so I think it just depends on the context, but I think having these rules is actually, like that's where I hit more resistance when people are like, it must always be this way. And I'm like, what do you mean always? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, so next question we have from Catherine. Um, when pushing back against a marketable container, how would you suggest building lateral connections, relationships, whether finding other writers who write poetic prose work or finding presses who are willing to make that jump? Would you say it's more trial and error process? It's a, it's a great question, Catherine. Um, you know, one of the, the gifts that I was given um, in, in my uh, grad school experience. Um, I did an MFA at, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, I studied largely, mostly with people there who were really, really skeptical about um, commercial publishing and mainstream publishing. And, and so there were actually a lot, there weren't a lot of conversations about how to sell work, but there were conversations about, um, you know, that question of like, oh yeah, who, who cares if it's like poetry or prose or like, why does it matter? Like what the, the label's on. And, and although I didn't really know it at the time, like what, what I was receiving was that kind of sense of there being a community out there because some of these writers, like I love, you know, one is Noi Holland, who's, whose work I absolutely adore. And she was a mentor to me and she would talk about like, yeah, like all, that one book I published sold like four copies. Like, you know, she had a, uh, a sort of, there was friction in her relationship with um, Big Five Publishing and, and she knew a lot of editors of small presses and people who worked at like little magazines. And so to me, that was like, you know, talking about normalizing things like that seemed very, um, you know, the way things were. Like I didn't come, and before I did my MFA, I, I knew very few writers and I didn't, you know, I, I, I was like very isolated in my, my life, my, my creative life in terms of that. And so the gift was that I didn't, like, I thought like, oh yeah, there's tons of people out there who are like, start, you know, doing zines or starting micro presses or she's a poet, but like, she just wrote a novel like that just was like, but, but 
that's not everyone's experience in an MFA program. And so, you know, I think it does take some time um, and, and, it, and it takes maybe like, say you live in a place where there are, well, now with COVID-19, this is, has a different, it's, it's different, but um, in terms of in-person readings, like if there are writers who are doing adventurous work on small presses who come to town and read, you can, you, you're, it's pr pretty likely that other people at that reading will have, um, s like share some of like the same values um, that you have as a writer. And it could be like, just showing up to the reading could be that, you know, gift to yourself of like, oh, maybe I'll see like who else in um, my town or the town 30 miles away, like is into this, um, this kind of work and, and just, I don't know. I, I know that sounds like a vague answer, but really knowing, like believing that there are so many ways to make art and to, um, and to have a relationship with publishing that doesn't have to feel like you're selling out um, all the time. <laughs> uh, and, and to have like some belief that those people are out there. I think it's maybe you can give yourself permission to, um, to explore to, to explore making connections. Um, I don't know, Janice? But... Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. And I think just like foregrounding the making connections for the sake of making the connections in the community rather than the priority being like, oh, I'm trying to find publishers and, and journals, right? Like I think all of that stuff hopefully comes afterwards, like in building genuine community. But, but also I'll say like, I'm very frustrated just like with the literary publishing industry in general in this country because of the scarcity idea like there is this like, oh, well, there's only so many presses that publish this kind of work or like, like, I feel like those things are true, but because we keep having those criticisms and conversations about like presses, things actually aren't changing. Right. And I, and, and so like my hope for like a post COVID era and like literary publishing is actually like somehow getting away from this scarcity model of like, oh, there's well only so many presses so we can only publish so many books of this kind. It's like, what is an alternate model where all of this work can be out there and appreciated and we don't have to rely so much on, on um, you know, capitalist endeavors. <laughs> yeah, which again also requires us as the artists to be willing to think about different ways for our work to be out there. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, that's why I think conversations like this aren't just, you know, intellectual exercises, they really are about like how by by imagining and being uncertain together, can we sh actually create a world where these things are more possible for more people. Um, and I think just the fact that like, you know, there's dozens of people right now, like sharing this conversation, and like, all of us, you know, belong to these various communities. And like, I think we can we can change change those those dynamics. Yeah. I think this next question is about academia <laughs> from Maura. Uh, this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you. Since both of you are also professors, how do you balance deal with the crushing pressure of academia and the writer world you were talking about tonight? They're both really alienating realms for those of us who do not read as normative mainstream. Yeah, yeah it's a really good question. Um, it's something for me, I mean, I don't know about you, Lainey, but it's something for me that like, I, I do think about quite often, right? Like, um, and this is probably 
the area of my life that still feels the most compartmentalized where I'm like, okay, well, I have my academic hat on and I must go to school and like deal in these things. Um, and the things don't, aren't always crossing, right? Like they cross a little bit. Um, but also I'll say like, I feel really fortunate to be teaching um, in a program and with colleagues um, that are really supported. So I don't actually feel like I need to like be performing something whereas in other institutions, I have felt like I need to like hide certain parts of myself to be more accepted or, um, you know, less strange or weird. Um, and I feel like I found the place where I'm doing very strange things in the classroom and that's totally allowed and is actually, um, you know, been really awesome with the students. Um, and so I feel like I've kind of figured out like what my role is. And one thing, when I was first deciding whether, uh, when I took this job and I was like, okay, this is going to be a semi-permanent decision for me. Like if I'm doing this, I'm going to be doing this for a little while. And I was actually like, what does it mean to be entering academia for me? Like, am I entering it just because it's seen as like a level of success for the type of career that I'm in and, and for the context that I'm in? And I had a very long talk on the phone with um, a friend and a mentor of mine, Dorothy Wang. And she kind of reminded me, she's like, it's not actually contradicting anything that you've been doing in your writing and in your, your activist work. She's like, being a teacher in an academic institution and being especially a female writer um, a female uh, person of color in an academic institution, you're a type of activist. It's teaching is the slowest form of activism there is. Um, and I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but I do think that like, you know, in, in the classroom, I think it's sometimes it's hard to see these things happen because you might not see like the fruits of your labor, so to speak, for like many years or like maybe never at all. Like you might not see it in your lifetime, but um, there is like a lot of important work and conversations that are happening in the classrooms. Um, and it is a type of activist work, um, but it is very slow. <laughs> and I think that kind of helped, um, you know, helped me realize uh, how to think about my pedagogy and how to think about my role in an academic institution, which I do think can be really alienating and which I do have a lot of problems with. Like, I think that, you know, school should be free for everybody. So I think it's a lot of ridiculous things, but like, while I'm here, like, what are, what can I do um, that is still an extension of like what I believe, right? Yeah, and I do, I mean, as Janice knows, like I often complain about <laughs> my job at Portland State um, or in academia and feel like, what am I doing? You know, is this, like I, I have a lot of ongoing questions about, um, you know, being a, a professor and, and participating in academia. And I also like what, what sometimes I have to do is kind of, like rather than seeing things in terms of like ideas, like the idea of being a professor in, you know, a teaching college or this idea, if I look at, okay, PSU has relatively good health insurance. And like, you know, I have a family member who like has a lot of like medical and therapy needs, you know, and that's just a reality of my life. Um, and it's a reason I stay in this job and it's, you know, and it's also a reason I think there are so many necessary changes like we, we, you know, we need to make in this country and like decoupling like fucking like insurance from people's jobs. I mean, that has to happen. But, um, but right now that's not true in the United States where I live. And so I can look at like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that I have a job that has uh, this kind of health insurance, you know, and 
And when I think about doing other things, um, that's one of the first things I think about. And so I think for any of us, for if, like whatever your, your, your current circumstances, to be able to honor the fact that like, not everything is gonna point in the same direction, you know, and, and like the kinds of activism that are actually possible for teachers, like some days it's, we're also gonna, Janice and I are bitching about the fact that like, they're telling like the professor, you know, the teachers at PSU to like bring in their own coffee, like, because, you know, even though the football team got a new stadium, like we can't like, they can't buy us coffee, right? But anyway, that's a, that's a whole other thing. And so I, I but there it is, um, Mara, I thank you for that question um, because, you know, one of the things, the, the ways that, you know, to make change in the world is changing these institutions and like change, like creating space for all of us in the institutions rather than for people who like already look like the institution or already fit there, you know? Yeah. And I, and I would add to like, I think, I think the awareness, like the continued awareness is really important. Like for me, it's important to like remember to not take all of this for granted where like, you know, like, yes, I did work really hard to, to get to where I am, but I also realize that lots of other people have worked hard and have also not gotten, um, you know, this, this the same position, right? So like, I, I also do realize that like, um, I'm in a place of privilege to be able to be have a tenure track position at a university to still have a job during this pandemic, right? Um, and so I, I also like, you know, as much as like, like, yes, like, you know, it's, it's ridiculous when they ask us like, you know, why can't we get coffee? Um, but also it's like, oh, like, and on the flip side, like there could be other, there could be other things, right? So it's like, yeah, that's crappy. And like, it's totally like merits some complaining and like venting. And also like, I'm really glad to be here and to be able to do these things um, because um, like, I don't really like a lot of the alternatives. So I do feel really grateful, at least for the time being, while higher education institutions are still alive because I don't actually know how long, how much longer they will be. Um, but like, what, what can I do, you know, with, with this position that I'm in? Um, and I do think about that as well. And um, I don't know if I'm always navigating it the most gracefully, but I try to, I try to stay aware and I try to keep asking these questions. Um, it looks like there's two more questions in the Q and A. Should we, should we respond to them and then like start to wrap up? Sure. Yeah. Um, Lena asks a question, just a comment to say, this convo is really affirming. Thank you so much. I've long been convinced that lit mags and publishers are interested in our stories when we quote other ourselves. So like Janice said, like focus on immigration or diaspora. My fiction was focused on living as a Brown American, no voyage to or from the quote motherland. And that seems to be unbelievable or uncomfortable for dominant culture to deal with. So much so that I switched to poetry where there seems to be slightly more room for more voices. Why does fiction seem behind poetry, nonfiction, graphic novels in being more truly inclusive and risk-taking, if that feels like a fair assessment? Is it a question for, uh, um, of what gate gatekeepers are willing or able to imagine? I mean, I, I, I do often think that fiction is the genre that's actually the most conservative in the US. Um, it's like a larger conversation, but I do agree with that. Um, but I will say, um, this is kind of like an indirect response to the question, but you know, I think, I think we're off, we often critique like journals and gatekeepers. And for me, it's important to remember like all of these gatekeepers are actually human beings, like they're individual people. And I don't think that most of these people are necessarily thinking of themselves like in this, oh, I'm in this position and I am a gatekeeper and like, this is what I'm doing. I think um, the decisions that they make 
become gestures of gatekeeping, but they come from places of like, oh, well, I need to make this decision in terms of thinking about what will further like the business or the company or like, oh, like, you know, this writer or this, like, I think they all stem from individual decisions that are being made. Um, and all of that is coming from these ingrained narratives that we all carry with us. It's, it is a part, part of a larger system, but it's a larger system that all of us as individual humans are upholding. Um, and I think that's the important thing for me to remember is like, it's not, it's not just like these other publishers, like those are also people like us who are making potentially bad decisions, but um, there's, but there's reasons for them. Right. And that's, that's the, what we have to undo. Like we have to undo all of the narratives in which people feel like they're making what they think are the best decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the hopefully or possibly useful things to come out of the conversation around the publication of American Dirt at the beginning of this year was like a kind of maybe more attention to or, or a broader awareness of all these different interlocking pieces that are part of like how that particular book came to be not only published but on like you know Oprah's book club and you know like two million dollar advance like all this stuff um it's yeah it's never just like one one editor who should be blamed for like you know like i mean it and it's a harder thing to look at but like we do have to look at like all of the all of the systems that like come to bear on you know that one book you know getting getting published and um i think sometimes like for me i know i'd rather just be like oh yeah like fire that editor, get rid, you know, like, because it's easier, you know, it's like an easier solution, but it's not necessarily the one that should happen, you know, um, but I think it is, sometimes it just takes longer to think about like, oh, like, well, what if we had a different editorial process, like, you know, um, and I know that, you know, uh, friends of mine who are, uh, who are writers of color have been talking about like, yeah, it's not just about like, oh, hire, you know, two editors of color and like, you're good. You know, like it, it's, it can't be about just like, you know, moving people around. It's like, what, how is the machine working? You know? Yeah. Um, so Janice, do you want to do Katie's? Yeah. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. How do you advise balancing finding creative success outside traditional gatekeepers, large publishers, et cetera, and the real need to pay your bills? Put another way, how have you come to understand the balance of time spent writing, no matter how commercially successful, versus need for income? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll say like, when I first decided that I was gonna be a writer, like when I uh, decided to get my MFA, um, I had like really no delusions um, because even at that time, I was like already writing very strange things and my teachers knew I was writing strange things and so, I never had in my head that I'm going to be a writer and like make an ink, make, make a living off of my writing. Um, but also I think this comes from like growing up poor and growing up working class. Like, like I just kind of had this understanding like, Oh, like people like making money off your art seems like this really like far away fantasy. So for me, I've always made a living doing something else. And I've had many different day jobs. So before academia, I did everything from like um, working in nonprofits to building websites. Um, and for me, writing was always the thing that I did because I loved doing it. And if there was money in it, it was a bonus. Um, but I never expected to get paid. 
that's not like a positive. I'm not saying that's a positive. I'm saying like that's the system that I was in in which I, I couldn't af afford to have that expectation, right? Um, which I think is also kind of terrible, but that's, that's like the world that I lived in. And it's only really like, I would say the last like five or six years that I started to get paid to uh, publish work in journals um, or to do talks or, um, you know, be invited to places and be paid in addition to just like travel um, kind of expenses. And for me, that's been pretty recent. Um, but all of that, I feel like I feel really fortunate because I know lots of other writers who also have been doing this a lot longer and, and don't get paid for these things. And that's a symptom of the problems of the industry in, in general in this country, like how we don't value writing and art in the same way that um, other cultures and other countries do, I think. Um, but it's what's, but like, but that mentality is also what kept me alive, right? Like, I feel like if I had the expectation that I was going to make money off of my writing that I might not have gotten this far and I would have just given up and cried in the corner or something, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I just like, you know, practically speaking, it was like, okay, I, here's the thing I need to pay rent and food. And then like, cool, if I make money off this other thing, like, great. Um, but I, but I, but I do want to also acknowledge that like, even though that comes out of necessity, like, 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 like there's so many writers who can't afford to do that. That's also actually part of the problem is that because so many writers are also willing to do work for free, that the system keeps going, right? Um, so I think it's this double-edged sword. So like, yeah, that's, that's all I'll say. Um, maybe just, just to wrap up, I, I just wanna say thank you to Janice um, for, for being yourself who is wonderful and also for writing that essay and kind of bringing those those questions alive um, for a lot of us um, and also thank you to, to all of you who asked questions and this has been a really um, illuminating conversation for me um, and I appreciate appreciate everyone chiming in um, Janice did you have any last thoughts or no just yeah, thank you to everyone who came and thank you, Lainey and Lance. Yeah. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Lainey Zumas's work at laineyzumas.com and Janice Lee's work at janicel.com and about the Portland State Creative Writing Program at pdx.edu slash creative-writing. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021 at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can learn about the bonus audio archive, which includes a, a reading, a blistering and electrifying reading by Lainey Zumas of a piece she wrote about Betsy DeVos. Get collectible work from everyone from Forrest Gander to Nikki Finney or become an early reader at Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, this 
and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. I'd also like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.